You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff. I'm here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. They're my co-hosts. Hey, you guys. Hi. Hi. This week on the show, I spoke to Lizzie Johnson. She is a reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, I love talking to newspaper reporters, particularly those that are very into a certain beat. And uh, she's on the fire beat. She is a fire reporter. She's been covering the massive wildfires that have erupted in California all over the state. Most recently, the campfire in Paradise, California, which destroyed that town. And uh, her coverage has been amazing. And she's done in particular some long stories. I think there was... Her story about the uh, Paradise Fire was so good that my mother emailed it to me twice. <laughs> it's uh, amazing. This is this is what our world has come to. There's a fire correspondent now in California. Yeah, and there's no... I mean, I had a lot of questions about sort of, what do you do the rest of the year? And there's actually like no shortage of like preparations and dealing with the writing about the last fire. I mean, her it really is what she covers. So it was it was fascinating to talk to her about it. Uh, happy New Year to both of you, and to you, man. Yeah, um, likewise. In keeping with the trends of this new year, one of the trends that I've noticed out there is people moving away from social media towards the email newsletter. If you are thinking about making a shift like that in the new year, there is no better place to do it than MailChimp. They make it so easy to start an email newsletter that uh, you will go straight from the idea to the practice uh, as one must in these things. Thank you, MailChimp. Here is Evan with Lizzie Johnson. Lizzie Johnson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I should say we're doing this remotely, um, which is something we don't often do on the Long Four podcast, but uh, we're partly doing it because I have been so eager to talk to you and I didn't want to wait till we were too far out from the main thing that you cover. So would you, I've seen you described as sort of like the fire reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Is that your title? Yeah, I've been covering wildfires uh, since the Wine Country wildfires in October of last year. And is that your beat sort of year round, even if there are not currently fires taking place? Yes. So I help out with other general assignment stories, too. But I primarily cover wildfires from when the flames start to the recovery effort to that big looming question of what happens next? Where do we go from here? 
which increasingly these communities across California are facing and trying to answer. Well, it's been, the coverage has been extraordinary. And I want to talk about, I don't know if each fire in turn, but I thought it might be useful for the purpose of the conversation to sort of, uh, for readers that may not be that familiar with Northern California or these fires or in some sense they're remote from them so they sort of run together to just sort of say which of the three big ones there have been in the last year I guess year and a half the first one was the Tubbs fire is that right yeah the Tubbs fire was October of last year and when that happened we thought it would be the biggest wildfire and the most destructive one that we would see for a while And then a year later, the campfire hit, and it completely wiped out the town of Paradise, and the loss of life was unimaginable. In addition to those two, the state also tracks biggest wildfire. So last December, we had the Thomas Fire, which hit down in Ventura in that area. And then again this summer, we topped it with the Mendocino Complex Fire, which was north of San Francisco. So... I mean, it's crazy that in modern history, we've had these huge, very deadly fires, and they just keep topping each other. And which one of those is also, one of them is also called the Car Fire. So that's a completely different fire. The Car Fire happened in Redding in July of this year, and uh, it spawned a fire tornado, which no one could really say what had happened. And it's kind of crazy. People were like, a fire tornado? What the heck is that? And then the state firefighting agency, which is called Cal Fire, confirmed it. But people still didn't really have a clear sense of what it was. So even that's extraordinary, like how much, I mean, that that sort of illustrates why there is a beat covering entirely fire now, given how many there have been just in that period. So let's let's go back a little bit and talk about how did you first, what was your first fire-related assignment? I know you were working as a Metro reporter for a while for the Chronicle. Is that where you were when you first got that assignment? Yeah, so I started in City Hall. I was in San Francisco City Hall for two years covering local politics. And I remember a few months after I started here, the Butte fire happened. And they sent me up that way because, you know, I think they were short on staffing and they just needed someone to go. And I remember thinking, this is crazy. Like, I grew up in Nebraska. I know tornadoes, but wildfires? What is this? And so I went and I was there for a couple of days. And then I came back and forgot about it for two years. And then in last year, when the wine country wildfires happened, I had just transitioned out of City Hall back to the general assignment desk. And I didn't really know what I wanted to cover yet. I was... You know, it seemed like everyone had their area of expertise, and I was trying to figure out how I fit into this grid of pre-existing beats. And when the wildfires happened, my editor called me and was like, hey, you're going to stay on this for the next year. And even then, I was like, okay, I can do this for a year. I can cover this wildfire for a year in the aftermath. And I really enjoyed it. It was completely different. It was this combination of so many different, very human elements of good storytelling where you have hope and community and grief and loss and climate change and these big questions about what do we do? What does this mean for California? Is this our new future? And so when a year came, the wildfires were still going. So I just stayed on the fire beat. And when you first, when your editor first said that and you said, okay, now I'm on the beat and now this fire started and now I'm going to head out, what, what is sort of your first move? Where do you say, okay, I'm going to get in the car and go where? Or even before that, like, what goes into the car with you? Yeah, so I like to listen to the scanner. You can kind of get a sense of 
where the fire is active and if there are any dicey situations happening, where the firefighters are staging, and that gives you a sense of how big the fire is. And I'll also start looking at weather reports, seeing what the saturation levels are in the air, if there's really strong winds, um, thinking about the fuels, like how dry things are in the landscape. And that also gives me a sense of how big the fire will probably be. And then I have a couple of firefighters within CAL FIRE that I routinely check in with. And they're really great about giving me a heads up and saying like, hey, are we going to see you at this one? It's going to be a big one. And that's when I know, you know, lay on the gas and get there as fast as you can. And did you already sort of know all that when you first, like when the wine country fire broke out in 2017, were you already sort of like, okay, here's my game plan. I get the scanners, I go one, two, three. Like how much of it is sort of, I knew exactly what I was going to do versus you show up and you and you have to feel out like, where is it? Where is everyone? Where is it safe to go? My first wildfire or I guess my second wildfire, the wine country wildfires, I had no idea what was going on. It was this mm. massive blaze unlike anything we had really seen before. And I remember my metro editor, who at the time was Trapper Byrne, texted me at like 3 in the morning. And he was like, 911, big wildfires, you need to come. And I had been at Yosemite National Park with my parents for the weekend. And I pounded on their hotel room door and was like, hey, I'm really sorry, but we have to go. And I had hiked Half Dome the day before, so I could barely move. I'm crunched up in this little car, and we're headed back to the Bay Area in the dark. And, you know, my parents moved slower, so it took us a while to get there. And I didn't get in until, you know, 9 or 10 over to Santa Rosa, and I relieved one of my colleagues who had already been there since, you know, 4 in the morning. And we were in the middle of Coffee Park, and... I just remember feeling so stunned because everything around me was gone. Like even the fireplaces were gone. And that's normally one of the few things that will remain standing during a wildfire is the big brick fireplaces that loom really eerily all the way to the horizon in the middle of rubble. Mm. And so that colleague was Jill Tucker who covers our education beat here. And I just remember hugging her. She was like, okay, I'm gonna go home now. Are you okay? And I said, yeah. And then I looked around and I just felt so overwhelmed. I had no idea what I was supposed to do next. So I started walking around and looking at things and trying to figure out who I needed to interview. And how did that sort of make itself apparent to you? I mean, there seemed sort of obvious places to go in terms of, you know, emergency personnel and that sort of thing. But your stories, I mean, especially you revisit these fires and later stories and they have this sort of very close human feeling like you really are with the victims of the fire very closely both at the time and and sort of like over time after that i'm curious do you make those connections right then or is it all about just sort of like trying to gather these specific facts for the next day's paper or the or online that night or immediately whatever in that moment yeah so when we're doing fire reporting in the first days we throw a huge amount of manpower in the direction of the fire. So we have people that work on what we call the main bar, which is just the big story talking about the numbers, how many structures burned, how many acres burned, how many people have died, and how contained the fire is, which basically just gives you a percentage of the perimeter of the fire. So say it's 40% contained, that means that firefighters have put a break around nearly half of the fire. 
So that's the big part of our reporting in the coming days, immediately after flames break out. But my focus is always trying to figure out what the human element is and who is actually being affected by this. I had a mentor in college who talked a lot about what she called the snail. So you would write the central theme of the story in the middle of a piece of paper. So in this case, it would be the Tubbs fire and then draw a spiral outwards and try and figure out everyone who would be affected by it. So I'll sit down and do that and think, okay, I know I want to write a story about what this is like for the firefighters and, you know, what it's like for a small child, what it's like for a teenager, what it's like for someone in the evacuation shelters. And that kind of gives me a sense of, you know, who I need to start talking to about that experience to humanize this. Because wildfires are very alien and bizarre if you don't live in California or another Mm -hmm. state that uh, is familiar with wildfires, it can be very hard to understand what it's actually like there. And so I know that there's power and specificity in giving people a character that they can identify with or someone that, you know, they can imagine being in their life, someone they can imagine having a conversation with over coffee. And so I try to create that in my stories where you really intimately get to know this person and how the wildfire is affecting them. And I feel like that is what makes people really start to care. Yeah, one of the things that comes through that I I gather probably is difficult for people who haven't had experience with fires is the sort of unpredictability of it. People might say, oh, okay, there's a fire coming, evacuate. And then it's not a problem. But over these stories, you sort of start to get the sense of how random it is in terms of where the fire is going and what how it jumps and where it could happen. Do you... How much have you sort of along the way, or at what point did you sort of study and learn about fire, like wildfires and how they work? Like, did you learn that through your reporting or did you do a separate sort of engage yourself in the research of how fires travel? So I think we all have that moment when we realize we've connected with a subject. And so for me, that happened in December of last year when I was sent down to Southern California to cover the Thomas Fire. And I was one of two reporters that we had down there. And that's when I started to realize how little I actually knew about fire behavior. So I remember calling my parents that Christmas and saying, hey, this is a subject that I feel really drawn to. And I think there's an opportunity here to write stories that people will really care about because this is becoming a huge issue with climate change. And so they bought me a bunch of fire behavior books for Christmas. And I started reading, you know, about crowning and what happens when the fire moves from the underbrush into the trees and then it explodes and lights other things on fire. And, you know, I I started learning really interesting things that I had never thought of before. Like fire is one of the few things in nature that likes to move uphill more so than downhill because heat rises, which is completely obvious and makes sense. But I just hadn't connected the dots on that. And there are all sorts of things you can learn about fire that kind of explain how it moves through the terrain and how severe it's going to be and how it will interact with the firefighters trying to contain it. So I sort of self-taught myself about this subject because I knew that to write about it really compellingly in a way that makes sense to people, I would have to understand it myself first. And it is an ongoing education and there's still a lot that I don't know, but I continue to read books and academic articles and get coffee with firefighters and say, you know, tell me about this. Why did the fire do this? And gradually I'm 
becoming more knowledgeable about this very kind of interesting and bizarre phenomena. Yeah, that makes me wonder if when you show up for one, if it's possible that you may have more experience and understanding of some of them than than a, like a local firefighter who hasn't necessarily dealt with this type of wildfire before, or at least that you could sort of speak their language in a way. Yeah, I mean, local firefighters in California, I feel like are pretty well versed in wildfires at this point because there's never enough resources when these huge blazes break out. It's kind of all hands on deck type of thing. But it is, there is always that moment when I'm talking to a firefighter and they're tired, their eyes are kind of glazed over, and you can tell they're a little bit annoyed at times where they don't really want to be talking to another reporter. And so when I show up and can speak their language a little bit, then I notice they'll engage with me and really try to help me understand because I've made the effort to try to understand what their world is like. And I think Mm -hmm. that's really powerful because... You know, there's this fascination with fire from the public perspective, and they want to know what's going on. And for the people that who have been evacuated, they want to know what's happening to their homes. And these firefighters are really the link to getting that information, and the reporters are the link to those firefighters to get that information. So you need to be able to speak their language and understand them, too. And in terms of sort of like physical proximity to the fire, when you arrive... Do you feel like you need to need to or want to see it or it's unnecessary to see it? And are there restrictions on where you can go or is it sort of like, hey, it's your risk. Like if you want to go, go. Yeah. So in California, we're lucky compared to other states. It is state law that firefighters and first responders and journalists are allowed to be back at the front lines of the flames. In other states, that's not so. It's only the firefighters and the first responders and the journalists have to cover the fire from like 10 miles away. And, you know, they make Mm. it work. But I feel like you really need to see it, to feel it, to see how people are reacting to the fire, to write about it really well. Otherwise, it's like, you know, how do you get that sensory information and those details? I mean, the fire itself is a character in these stories. And no two fires are exactly the same. You know, they're eating different types of vegetation. They're moving at different rates of speed. And to have that level of nuance, I really think that you need to be back there and witnessing it with your own eyes and seeing how it feels to you. So when I'm covering a fire, I'll go back. And, you know, I'm never close enough where I feel like I'm personally threatened. There are things that I do to make myself more comfortable Like, I always keep the firefighters between myself and the flames. There's this photographer named Noah Berger who has been photographing wildfires for many years now. And I'll go find him and stick with him because he is a very tall man. And I know if something happens, he'll, you know, protect me. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, and I always stay on the roads. But fire can be really scary because it's like you mentioned, it's very capricious and you can never with any certainty say where it's going to move next. So I've had instances where I'm driving down a road and all of a sudden there are flames behind me. And I'm like, wow, I really don't fully know where the road forward goes and I'm a little freaked out. And it's always okay. But you do have those moments because fire is like this living, breathing thing. And it doesn't care about you. So you need to be really proactive and take care of yourself too. You know, you want to get the story, but it's not worth getting your hair burnt or something over or worse, losing your life. (laughs) Yeah. 
are there guidelines from the Chronicle or from your editors saying, you know, we we want this, but you should take these precautions or you should stay this distance? Or do they just say, uh, go do it and try not to get killed? <laughs> um, they always have CAL FIRE, which, as I mentioned earlier, is the state firefighting agency. They uh, come in and teach journalists very basic fire training, you know, to leave your car running so that if the flames get close, you can actually go because if you turn your engine off and the fire gets too close, it'll suck all of the oxygen out of the air so you won't be able to start your engine and then you're trapped. So it's very basic training. And from that Mm. point forward, you know, when you're out in the field, the cell service oftentimes isn't great because along with the fire, the cell towers burn. So I can't say I'm in terribly close contact with my editor at all points in time, but my editor, Damien Bola, and I have this basic level of trust where he knows I'm not going to be stupid. And, you know, I'll, I'll want this story, but I'm not going to run into the flames for it. And sometimes he'll say offhand things like, okay, go get the story, but don't get too close to the fire. Like, don't get burnt. And uh, that's about, we kind of dance around it. I think, you know, with something without much levity, you just kind of assume that the person can handle it and the reporter will come back in one piece. So let's talk a little bit about the people that you encounter there. So you've got your your snail and you're trying to get the stories of as many people as possible who are affecting these different ways. But I assume, I mean, you can tell from the stories, you're some of these people you're encountering on the worst day of their lives and the worst day of anyone's life that we could imagine in some cases. And I'm curious sort of how they respond to you and what your approach is to them. This was something that I've definitely had to work with over the last year. It's kind of like, you know, when you're a beginning journalist and you have to write an obituary and calling the family of the person who died seems like this insurmountable, very invasive task and you don't really want to do it. That's kind of how I felt about interviewing fire victims at first, where I felt like I was somehow intruding on their grief and their pain. But somewhere along the way, I realized that There is healing and power in talking about what you've been through and saying it out loud and being able to claim ownership to it. And I found that time after time, these people are very grateful because they need to talk. They have something to say. And in the aftermath of this big, massive thing that just came and wiped out everything they knew on this day that is the worst day of their life, they really do just need someone to listen to them. And so I have never had someone tell me, oh, go away. We don't want to talk to you. And I'm completely just Mm. bowled over by that every single time. Like you said, that on the worst day of their life, they will take an hour or two to talk with me or to drive up to their house and talk about, you know, the table where they used to make breakfast for their grandchildren or the burnt out husk of the car in the garage that they had been working on for 20 years. I feel like it's just part of, you know, they want to talk about what they had. They want to acknowledge that their experience was real. And I am just the ears that listen and receive that story from them. Are there any cases in which they they sort of talk to you in the moment, but later express regret like in the moment they're sort of like looking for an ear but then later they feel that what they told you was too personal i've never had that 
And I think part of that is because when I talk to them at the very onset, I'm very clear with what I'm looking for. I'll tell them, you know, my name's Lizzie Johnson. I work for the San Francisco Chronicle covering wildfires. I want to get the very human experience that you're going through right now and help people know you. And part of that is going to be asking questions that you might feel are invasive. So if there's something that you don't want printed, please clarify that it's off the record or don't tell me. And if at any point you want to look through my notebook or you're curious about what I'm thinking about the story, I'm very happy to tell you. I think there is this level of, you know, mystery. People don't always know what we do for our jobs. And I feel like filling in those gaps and saying, you know, this is how it works and this is what I'm going to do makes them very comfortable. And so they have a sense of what's going to be out there before I ever write it. And for some of them, uh, I'm thinking of the first the wine country fire, you followed these two couples that lived down the street from each other who each of them lost their house. And I think if I recall in there, it said sort of like you spent hundreds of hours with them. And I was interested in, did you identify those couples from the beginning, from covering when the fire was still happening and said, these are people that I want to catch up with later? Or did that happen organically that you're actually in touch with a lot of these victims over time and it sort of evolved into these were the best story? Like, how does that story, that longer look back or following them, how does that come about? I did. So I met them the day that Santa Rosa's Coffee Park neighborhood reopened. And that was the hardest hit area in the Tubbs fire. There were a couple of areas too, but that was the one where it was the most drastic. And they were digging through the husk of their home. And I remember thinking, you know, these two couples could be a pretty good follow long-term. There was this beautiful symmetry to them that I really liked where one of the couples was older. They had moved into Coffee Park right after the neighborhood was built and they were nearing the end of their lives, not really sure if they were going to rebuild or what this would mean for them going forward. And the husband in that couple actually nearly died when I was reporting because he had a really massive heart attack from the stress of that Mm. experience. And then kind of the flip side of that for them was this younger couple and the wife was pregnant with their first child. They had just moved into Coffee Park. It was this perfect landing space where you could actually buy a semi-affordable house in the North Bay, which is becoming more and more rare as the housing stock dwindles and, you know, supply and demand. And I just really liked the parallel lives that they were running. And there was also this other really interesting similarity where the wife in that couple was pregnant with a baby who had a heart defect. And even that, the fact that, you know, the older husband was having heart issues and the baby had heart issues. I just felt like there were a lot of kind of similar overlaps between them as they looked outward and tried to figure out what their lives would look like from there on out. So I had a sense that I wanted to follow them. And I interviewed a bunch of other fire victims. I'd like to have a pretty wide database of people on my computer. That way, if there are other stories that I want to write later, it's easier to figure out who to talk to. Because, you know, finding these people after the diaspora when they leave for far-flung places or in temporary housing in other parts of the state is really difficult. So I kind of combed through that and was like, you know, my gut instinct is these two couples, and those are the ones that I settled on. And that database, so when you, do you take, actually take your notes and people's names and phone numbers and actually like put them into a kind of database of all of the sources? 
Yeah, so I have a Word document on my desktop, and it's all of my firefighting sources, all of my climatology and fire behavior experts, and then just a huge list of civilians that were impacted by the different fires that I've covered. So like the Tubbs fire, the Thomas fire, the Carr fire, the Medicino complex, the Camp fire. That way, if I need to go back and talk to them again for anything, I, I have their information. Or if I'm hearing some kind of trend, I can check in with them and be like, hey, you know, I think I want to write this story. What have you heard? Do you know anyone that is experiencing that? And they can help me find the right person to talk to. Wow, yeah, it's like a, a network that you can just tap into, really. Yeah, I mean, so much of good storytelling is just a ton of lake work and reporting and research, and that makes it a tiny bit easier when you kind of have a sense of who you can go to for that information. Do you ever experience, I feel like I've sometimes experienced spending a lot of time with people while reporting a story, and then and then the story comes out, and then there's this sort of disappointment, like they want to keep talking to you because you are a good person to talk to as a reporter like all your job is to listen to them and then they 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 still want that even though you've already you know finished the story in my case I would often just move on to the next story on a different topic but do you find that you're in touch with them in a way that they just want to talk to you sometimes whether or not you've you've already covered them yeah so that's really interesting is you know I've been on the fire beat for like a year and a half now I'm starting to experience that And I do think that when you're talking with someone quite frequently, you do start to care about them a little bit and they start to care about you. And obviously you need to keep the professional boundary there, but it's just something that I'll tell them like, hey, at the end of this project, I might not be around as much, but if you're ever by the newsroom, would love to grab a coffee or a lunch or, you know, feel free to text and just kind of, you know, maintaining the professionalism, but staying in touch too because you are only human and when you spend that much time with someone you don't just want to cut them out and be like okay well now the story is over so we can't talk anymore that just seems very cold yeah i mean especially the kind of people you're talking to are they are often they've been sort of set adrift from their their lives i mean you describe that in the story is the way they're sort of some of them want to go back and some of them don't want to go back and they're living in this temporary housing and it's just they're just kind of out there adrift, it seems like. Mm-hmm. And their journeys, you know, even though there are bookends to these stories, their story continues even after you read the last paragraph where many of them still haven't rebuilt or found permanent housing and they're still figuring it out. So I like to stay in touch for that reason too because if some really crazy thing happens, that's a good story as well. So you wrote this story that came out more recently called 150 Minutes of Hell, which was about the car fire, which is the one that happened over the summer and the fire tornado. I'm interested in how long it took you to kind of develop those storylines. And there's so many sort of narratives that are woven together. And so how did that project first come about? Someone told me that there was a fire tornado at the car fire. And I remember thinking, that can't be right. Fire tornadoes aren't that there's no way. And the more I thought about it, I was like, well, if this thing actually happened, that's really that's really newsworthy. And I think one of the downfalls of local reporting that can happen sometimes is once the immediate breaking news passes, it's much harder to stick around and tell the stories 
and explain what actually happened, particularly when it's in a city pretty far away. So like Redding is a couple hours drive north of San Francisco. So I was like, okay, I kind of want to dig in and figure out what this is. And CAL FIRE, the state firefighting agency, finally issued this report because two of its firefighters had died during that fire. And so because they're Mm -hmm. a taxpayer-funded agency, they have to be publicly accountable for when one of their employees dies and explain what happened and what they could have done better. And I was reading that report, and like the last part of it was like, okay, well, this was a fire tornado, and we don't really know what to do to protect people when a fire tornado hits. Maybe just try and stay really far away. And I, I read that and was like, oh, my God, like, what? And so I had this green sheet and I was like, there were all sorts of people trapped inside of this fire tornado. And just reporting on this public document is fine, but I feel like it's doing a disservice to what actually happened and what these people went through. So I started requesting all of these public documents trying to figure out who was trapped on the inside of the tornado. Because I knew if I could just find one or two of them, they would connect me with other people and that would be the story. So Mm. I finally got the documents back from Cal Fire. And they're like handwritten, they're scanned, you can barely read any of them. And so I'm paging through this really long document trying to figure out the locations of all of their employees during the fire tornado and looking for the names of the two firefighters that died, hoping that I could find, you know, their supervisor or the other people on their team that were working nearby. And I eventually found this guy named Sean Rayleigh, who is one of the firefighters that I mentioned in my story. And he was the bulldozer boss for a couple of people that were working up along Buenaventura Boulevard, which is the um, road in the neighborhood where the fire tornado went through. And so he was my big break where I was able to slowly connect with the bulldozer operators and the other firefighters that were nearby and the civilians that were trapped. And then also the Marin County Fire Department was a big part of it. And again, that was just, it's like a big puzzle when you're looking at these documents and trying to figure out how it all fits together. And the Marin County Fire Department had released a report saying that three of their firefighters had sustained burn injuries during that blaze. And it was in the same area that the fire tornado was in. So I kind of connected the dots on them and called Marin County and was like, hey, I really, really want to talk to your firefighters. And they were like, ooh, we're really, really not sure about that. (laughs) And I was like, please. And finally they were like, okay, like come up, we'll meet and try and figure out if this is something we want to participate in. And ultimately they said yes. And so that's kind of what the legwork looked like in terms of finding all of these people and then the interviews after that. And then when you sort of sit down to try to assemble that, I mean, you had a tremendous amount of reporting and then also a lot of different characters and there's different firefighters trapped in different places. There's different civilians trapped in different places or trying to get to people. And so what's your process by which you sort through that and you settle on the narrative that you chose? It was a little, it was a little difficult for me at first because you're right. I did have a lot of characters, but I felt like all of them contributed some kind of unique perspective to the fire or they saw it from a different angle and I remember my editor kept saying well do we need all of them like can we cut just like one of them and I would push back and be like no no like I think we need all of them and we kind of went back and forth for a while on who we wanted to open the story with I originally had 
Tom Lubis, who was the Cal Fire captain who really first saw the fire tornado at the very top of the story. And it kind of worked. It wasn't as powerful as it could be. And in the meantime, I had requested all of the audio from the 911 calls. And through that, I realized that one of the bulldozer operators that I had talked to, Don Andrews, had this really intense conversation with this dispatcher telling her, you know, please call my wife. Please let her know that I love her. I don't think I'm going to make it out of here, but don't send anyone else in. Don't risk anyone's life for mine. And once I heard that, I was like, that is where we need to start to get that sense of depth and desperation. It's incredible. That, That part is incredible. Yeah, it really... I think it really humanizes it. Again, my my angle is always to try to put you in that moment to kind of force the empathy to make you care about this person and imagine what you would do if you were in that scenario. And I think Don Andrews was the perfect way to do that. And one sort of random thing that I wondered in, because I was reading a lot of your stories sort of like in succession, and you have all of these ways, all these different and beautiful descriptions of fires but being on the fire beat, that struck me as like a challenge to just just the idea of having to describe fire again and again in different stories and make it distinct. And do you have do you have sort of like process by which you work through those descriptions or does that come naturally to you? Yeah. So one thing that has really helped me is I keep a personal journal and at the end of the reporting, I'll sit down and write my own account about what I saw and who I talked to and what stuck out to me and kind of what the civilians were telling me, what the firefighters were talking about just for myself. And oftentimes when I'm facing writer's block, I'm like, I just like don't know how many other ways to describe this fire from a journalistic standpoint. I'll go to my journal and read what I wrote about the fire there. And oftentimes it's a little more raw and a little more rough because I wasn't trying to be a reporter about it. I wasn't trying to make it really neat and really polished. And it it, it's just easier because I think when you're writing for yourself, you aren't self-editing as much. So there are things Mm -hmm. that I forgot about that I'll take out of my journal and be like, okay, well, this is a good fire description and this is how it was moving. So I'll use that. And are you finding that there's a personal toll to you to immersing yourself in the world of these tragedies over and over again? Yeah, so that's really tricky. I feel like journalists have a really hard time talking about themselves or what they're experiencing. And I know from talking to other young reporters, it's pretty common to have this take a personal toll. And it does. And talking about it, I think, is the more difficult part. I just don't, I don't know how you could cover something this big and traumatic without taking pieces of it home with you. There are days when, you know, I'll interview five or six people in secession who went through these really crazy, very intense life or death moments. And as a reporter, you receive it and you write all of that down. And to write about it really compellingly, you have to feel it too. You know, To make someone cry in a report, I think you have to cry a little bit while you're writing it. So, yeah, it it is really hard sometimes when I come home to San Francisco, which is this really glittering and at times very 
excessive city where people buy $5 coffee and drive around Teslas and live in $4,000 a month apartments. And I look around and it's almost a little bit of culture shock where I'm like, why, why are we living like this when people have nothing? And I definitely struggle with that a little bit, but you know, it's always helpful to have good friends around who can listen to you talk and to take care of yourself, you know, get enough sleep, have a good therapist, go for runs, and just believe that what you're doing can have a difference and that there is meaning to it. And so that keeps me moving forward too. Yeah, some of those stories, I mean, the the story of the great-grandparents and the kids, like I, I almost, I couldn't handle that story as a reader. And I was just trying to imagine like you s- trying to sit in the moment with that the guy who survived and like hear that story and what that was like to experience it firsthand or do you go into sort of like an an automatic mode where you're like you're just focused on the interview or do you get wrapped up in the emotion when you're when you're having that conversation i think when you're actually reporting there is this sense that you're doing a job And so I don't feel as much emotion in the moment. I tend to get tunnel vision where I'm so focused on what they're saying and reading their body language and asking the right questions and seeing what they're looking at in their environment and how they're interacting with it, that there's really no room for myself in that. But it's when you go to the hotel afterwards and you're by yourself and you aren't at home, that's when I'll have that moment where I'm like, that is just so sad and so devastating and you know I went and interviewed Ed Bledsoe and I remember getting back to the hotel and I cried for like an hour and then I called my videographer and I was like hey are you okay and he was like no I just cried for like an hour too I think you aren't human if you don't feel those emotions like to sit that close to someone's grief and not feel it again it's like how do you how do you not like we're all only human and we want to empathize and connect with each other. Yeah. And the other um, story that kind of brought that to light for me was the the guy who who saved people's houses and then kind of regretted it. And that, that story to me was both a tragic story in a different way than, uh, you know, loss of life, although people did die there too. But, um, but it, it sort of highlighted to me like how you are trying to capture a certain complexity. Like these stories could be very simple. There's a big fire. Some people died. There were heroes and here are the heroes and they tried to save people and uh, on to the next one. But that story in particular seemed to capture this sort of like unpleasant complexity around these, like even the guy that was the hero, when you actually get to him, he wishes that he had never saved people's houses for these sort of complicated reasons. And I don't really have a question except to say that I, I, I found that in that story. And I'm curious, I guess, to what extent you're looking for that, for like the more complicated story. Of course. Yeah. You know, I feel like there's a formula to covering wildfires that is very easy to subscribe to, where you tell the stories of heroism, you talk about the person digging through their home to find their wedding ring. You talk about what they escaped with. And a lot of times that's where the news cycle drops off. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's part of getting people to pay attention and care. But for me personally, I try to dig deeper 
and think about what the different layers of complexities are. And then going back to that snail model, trying to figure out who is being impacted by it in the hours, weeks, and months afterwards. So with the story about Priest Morgan, who helped save the mobile home park called Journey's End, which, you know, with a name like that, you can't even make it up for writing. It's too good. (laughs) That was destroyed by the Tubbs fire in Santa Rosa last October. And so in the course of working on a story in Coffee Park, I heard a lot about how the people whose homes remained standing had this terrible smoke damage, but because their house was still there, their insurance wouldn't really pay for them to stay in a hotel or somewhere else. And it was one of those situations where, you know, it was like, damned if you do, damned if you don't. And even the people that had the best outcome really weren't that much better off. And so I started thinking, like, okay, well, what about the people who saved these houses? How must they be feeling right now knowing that they're the reason why these people are struggling so much? And so I had been writing about this mobile home park called Journey's End for a couple of months now. It's a retirement community of low-income seniors, and a couple of rows of the houses survived. But the seniors had nowhere else to go. Like, they didn't have any money. They're on a fixed income. And meanwhile, they're living in this hotel called The Sandman, washing their dishes in the bathroom sink or in the bathtub at 85, 90 years old, which isn't the kind of lifestyle that anyone wants, but particularly when you're older in life. So their houses are saved, but they can't go back to their houses because they're they're damaged enough that they're unlivable, but they didn't burn down. Exactly. It's like the ground underneath the trailers have been condemned, but the trailers are still standing. So insurance is like, aha, we have a loophole because your house is okay. We don't have to pay out. And so I had heard that this guy named Priest Morgan had helped save the trailers And he actually called into our newsroom one day asking us to cover a different story where he was just going to, you know, buy lunch for a couple of the firefighters that helped him save the park that day. And I called him and I was like, hey, so I think that's a good idea. But I actually had a couple of other questions for you. Like, how do you feel? Like, how does it feel knowing that you saved this park? And he went off and was just like, I feel so terrible. I regret this every day. He started crying. And I immediately was like, okay, priest, how soon can I come see you? Can I drive up right now? And he was like, of course, I would love to talk to you. And that's what led me to priest. It's unbelievable. I mean, he's like, he's despondent. That he's, Doesn't he say at one point, like, I wish I had never woken up and I could have just died? Yeah. When actually he was the hero of the day who saved all these houses? Yeah. Exactly. And there's something about that that is just like so much more sad when a good person does something really good and the outcome is as if they were a bad person who had done something bad. Well, it's kind of amazing to me that the uh, that the paper is giving you this space to sort of tell these complex stories in part because, as is very well known Newspapers are struggling financially and they're maligned from all sides. And so that makes me want to know why you decided to get into newspapers and why you chose the route at this particular time in the world to, you know, start your journalistic career and, and move your journalistic career through newspapers. So when did you first kind of feel like you wanted to become a newspaper reporter? I don't actually remember a time when I didn't want to be a newspaper reporter. Uh, As a kid, I would make my mom these little 
newspapers on Mother's Day and put them on her tray. And we had this big boxy Mac computer with dial-up internet. And I would go sit down there and, you know, call my grandmother and interview her and write stories. Like, I always felt this sense that, you know, this is something that I really wanted to do. And I think it took my parents off guard a little bit because, you know, my dad is a respiratory therapist. My mom is an oncology nurse. And their family, you know, my father grew up in a railroad family. My mom grew up on a farm in Iowa. And they didn't really have creatives in their families, and they'll willingly admit that. And so they were like, okay, like, we'll just let her run with this. And I ended up going to school at the University of Missouri. And that was the first time that I really kind of questioned if this was something that I wanted to do, not necessarily because of the state of the journalism industry, but because I'm a pretty shy, soft-spoken person. And it was hard interviewing people that I didn't know, complete strangers. And it was just really difficult to get out of my shell. And in the end, I think this ended up being a really good career field for me because it forces me to, you know, extrapolate and be a little more extroverted and come out of myself. And so when I left the University of Missouri, I graduated in December 2014 and went to an internship at the Chicago Tribune. And, you know, that was my first time being in like the real world of journalism where I didn't have that safety net where at the end of the internship, I was going back to school. So I was like, mm. okay, well, now it's time to get a job. Like this elusive thing, how do you get a job? Like what is health insurance? And everyone was kind of like, well, good luck with that. So I applied for, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, people, I feel like there are some older people in the journalism industry that are quite jaded. And they had tried to convince me to go a route that was a little more lucrative or stable, but I had my heart set on journalism. So I applied for an internship at the San Francisco Chronicle, which was far away in a city that I had never been to before. And they called me one day and were like, hey, like you got the internship. And I was like, great, I'll be there in June. And then, you know, it was like 20, 30 minutes later, they called me back and were like, oh, do you just like want a full-time job? And I was like, oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Send me the paperwork, I'll sign it right away. Because I was so nervous they were going to change their mind or realize, you know, that they were making this big mistake that I was only 21 years old and had no idea what I was doing or felt like I didn't know what I was doing. So I moved to San Francisco a couple of months later and I've been here ever since. Well, also, I want to know what happened with that hiring committee, like that they were just sort of like, all right, we got to fill this internship. And then they kind of like, made the call and then they looked at your resume again and they were like, screw it, let's, why don't we just hire, we need a reporter, how about this person? Like why, <laughs> well, how'd you get upgraded so quickly? I don't know, I never asked. I think part of me was really terrified that they would look closer and be like, oh, well we've changed our minds, actually we don't want you anymore. So I just signed <laughs> the paperwork as fast as I could and then I got here as fast as I could. There's also something kind of crazy about you starting as a Metro reporter and doing things like covering city politics when you're saying that you had literally never been to San Francisco before. So you're not like a seasoned person in San Francisco who knows where everything is. So when you show up in the newsroom and like, okay, go cover San Francisco, like, did you, from your internship and from your training, did you kind of have an idea where to start with that? I was so overwhelmed, Evan, because they had hired me to cover the East Bay. And then 
like a month before I was set to start work, they called me again and were like, we're actually going to put you in San Francisco City Hall. And I was like, <laughs> oh, dear. Like, I've never really covered politics before. And they were like, no, it's good. We need an outside perspective. We need a fresh voice. And you'll have plenty of support. It'll be great. And I just hated City Hall so much. I think that there are some types of people that really are energized by politics. They love covering it. But for me, I just felt this like deep sense of dread every time a city politician called my cell phone at 10.30, 11.30 at night to chew me out because they thought my story wasn't fair or they thought they had this big scoop that was not even a scoop. And it just wasn't a good fit. So I did that for two years and then moved over to the general assignment desk last summer, ready to find something that actually excited me again. And that's when I found wildfires. Well, you've obviously, you know, are doing that in a very meaningful way. Did you ever, on when you were on the other beat, did you ever say, you know what, maybe newspapers wasn't the right right place for me or or even look around the industry and say, this whole thing is falling apart. Why did I do this? Yeah, I spent, you know, two years there where I would look up grad school and then order GRE books off of Amazon and start studying for the GRE, not because I necessarily wanted to take the GRE or thought that I would go to grad school, but because it just gave me some sense of control over my own destiny and path forward. And I was so unhappy where I was. You know, I I had always found this deep sense of purpose in this career field. And for the first time, it was like all of the joy was leaching out of it. And I would call my parents who have always had very traditional jobs and thought about a job as work. And I realized I was thinking about my career the same way, which isn't something you want to feel when you're 21 years old in a brand new city in a brand new job. And so there were a couple of years there where I was seriously considering whether this was actually something that was right for me. And now that you're, I mean, you're sort of in the fallow period for fires. It's the more rainy season there now, but when you look ahead to the next year and the sort of inevitable new big fire that's going to break out, like what drives you? Like what's new and interesting about it that makes you want to stay, continue to kind of cover this sort of very tragic and tragic and also like beat that sort of repeats itself? It's a challenge. And I think that's why I like it so much. I know that I probably won't be on wildfires forever. But for now, it is something that it's like there's so many stories there that get missed. And people have, who have experienced this really devastating thing and have to rebuild their lives and try to figure out how to move forward. And with climate change, this isn't something that is just going to go away. So I'm always trying to figure out, OK, well, where could the next paradise be? What are the at-risk areas? What are those towns doing to prepare and then also working on bigger long-term projects, following some of these people for, you know, different angles and figuring out what they're going through and helping people care. Because I don't want people to think about wildfires as, you know, for a month there's smoke in the air and people are evacuated and they can't go back to their homes and then you just kind of forget about them. I feel like that is a terrible thing to do when coverage drops off because these people don't automatically just resume their lives. It can take years for that to happen. 
And I think my job is making people care and making them realize that this isn't something that just goes away after a month. It's something that lasts for so much longer than that. Well, thank you for coming on the show. And I'm grateful that you are able to spend the time and and that the Chronicle gives you the time and space to be able to keep covering this. So I look forward to reading more. And thank you so much for having me. This was really great. That is all on this week's long-form podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host. Thanks to Lizzie Johnson for doing that. Uh, The San Francisco Chronicle also has its own podcast that you should check out. It's called The Centerpiece, and there's an episode with Lizzie called City of Ash. I recommend you go download it. Special thanks to my friend Jeff O'Brien for suggesting this episode. And to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. And to our editor, as always, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Tyler McCloskey, and to our sponsor, MailChimp. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Claude 3 from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic.